0: Welcome to the Vertigoise Show. I'm Eric. I'm Sean. And we are the Vertigoise. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are after the end of Sandman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're in the substantial epilogue to Sandman The Wake. Part one. We are doing The Wake as two parts. Yeah, well, The Wake. There are six issues, I guess, in the Wake trade, and three of them, I would say, constitute the story arc, The Wake, and the other three are more sort of separate epilogues. Are these separate epilogues, are they actually numbered issues? They're not like one-shots? Yeah, they are numbered issues. Okay. So, previously on Sandman, we don't need to go into all of the details of the Kindly Ones, but basically, Morpheus had mercy killed his immortal son, Orpheus. Yeah, after sort of being the one who got him into trouble in the first place. Yeah. He spilled family blood in doing so, which made him pray for the Kindly Ones, an ancient destructive force that enforces the law against not spilling family blood, who are also sort of the Hecate, just the sort of omnipresent mother maiden crown figures. Right. They came into the Dreaming. Morpheus answered a summons from his ex-servant Noala, who was in love with him, which meant that once he left the Dreaming, the damage the Kindly Ones did was permanent, so when he went back to the Dreaming, he ultimately chose to face them and be killed. Right. But he had arranged for his replacement in the form of Daniel Hall, a baby, the son of a retired superhero named Lyta Hall, who had been gestated for a while in the Dreaming and was sort of connected to it. And when Morpheus died, Daniel grew up into the new dream of the Endless. Indeed. Did we forget anything? Murph Pumpkinhead died. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. A lot of our favorite dreams died. But we can sort of get into the little bits and pieces of previously when we run into them. For now, we are getting into a very heavy epilogue here. We've got three issues of Funeral. Well, really, it's one issue of Invitations, one issue of Wake, and one issue of Funeral. Fair enough. So, I couldn't figure out which of these pages of art is actually the cover to Sandman number 70. We have this one that seems to show Daniel the New Dream in a garden with statues, and there's inexplicably a 13. Was it ever collected in such a way that The Wake is the 13th book? Must be, because this seems like a cover put together for a book of The Wake. But I would point out also that this is page 13. Well, okay. Because it says that the comic book starts on page 14. Okay. But that's a weird way to integrate the page number. Anyway, this is a pretty cool piece of art. It shows Daniel with these flowers in his hand looking kind of thoughtful. He's gathering flowers, the poem that Morpheus left him in the previous story arc, began Flowers Gathered in the Morning. That's probably just a coincidence. But is this the actual cover to issue 70, or it is it the next It is not. Page? So, Sandman number 70, the cover is this Dave McKeon illustration of a bust statue, no arms or head, with a glowing heart in the center. Yeah, and this is gonna evoke a character that we meet, or who actually is born later in this issue. Yep, last episode, new character. So this issue is entitled, Which Occurs in the Wake of What Has Gone Before? Each of the uh, issues in the wake is named after a different meaning of the word wake. Ah. All of the issues we're covering today are written by Neil Gaiman, penciled and inked by Michael Zulli, colors by Daniel Vazo, letters by Todd Klein, and edited by Karen Berger. So I am actually going to do something a little unusual here. And instead of taking it one page at a time, we can go back and do that later. But instead of taking it one page at a time, I'm just going to start by saying we get a narration box that says it came to pass that a messenger was sent out to each member of the family, and in turn we see each member of the family, and each of them is greeted by a different type of bird. Yeah, or in Despero's case, it's a bat. Well, which is, you know, very, very loosely speaking, not scientifically speaking, a kind of bird. Right. It's a winged animal. Right. It's a flyer, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, so is that a seagull for destiny, bat for despair, an owl for death? Something green with plumage for desire. Yeah, I was hoping that you would know what desires was. It certainly looks like a tropical bird to me. Yeah. Some parakeets are green, and some macaws are green. Yeah, I don't know if there's an extremely thoughtful reason for why each bird is the bird that it is, although it being Neil Gaiman, that would make perfect sense. It makes sense to me that Desire's bird is brightly colored because, you know, whatever would be associated with Desire would be something desirable, something that looks like you wanted. Yeah, Despair got something that's kind of foreboding and stupid. Death got something that's kind of foreboding and wise. (laughs) Seagulls for Destiny. Seagulls, I think, evoke tides, and tides sort of evoke fate. Oh, okay. I get that. There's a line in the narration here. The family did not send to ask from whom the messenger had come. It was not the first time that messengers had visited them, after all. And there are some powers that no one, not even the Endless, seeks to inquire into too deeply. So the messenger that alerts them that one of them has died is just part of the universe as they are, part right. of what maintains their function. That does imply that it's the same messenger for each of them, even though it's appearing as a different creature. Oh, or sent by. The sent by the same force, at right. least. So we see here that, well actually we see Barnabas first, but Barnabas and Delirium are the last to arrive at the gathering of those that will come. Destruction presumably was sent for, but either his messenger couldn't find him or he refused to show. Right, his having left the family 300 years ago, he is not coming to this event. Delirium, as she comes up, she is reciting the nursery rhyme, One for Sorrow, but it's always sorrow. One for sorrow, two for sorrow, three for sorrow. Four, 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 I don't know, but I'm bored of sorrow. Right. So I don't know if she's hit really hard by it, or if if she's just talking about the fact that birds delivered bad news. Right. And we don't know what kind of bird she got. No. Maybe not a bird at all. Maybe it was like a flying fish. That would be very her. She does seem to have a preoccupation with sea life. Yeah. Delirium walks up and says, hello everybody, it's me, not anyone else, just me. Which is not true! Barnabas is standing right there! (laughs) But she is not anybody but herself. Well, okay. This crossroads, we are told, is in the shadow of the Quincy Mountains. I looked this up, this does not seem to be a real place. Quincy, by the way, is an inflammation at the root of the tonsils. So they're gathered at the the sore throat cliffs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The coughing cape, if you will. The pustule pinnacle. (laughs) I think just everything in this world has a vaguely unpleasant or disease-centric name. I know that, like, old disease names are something that Neil Gaiman enjoys. Right. So we should probably take a moment here to talk about Michael Zulli's art for this story arc. I like it a lot. It looks very grounded, but also kind of painted. It conveys a sort of sense that these are very momentous events. Yeah, I think that's right. it's It's really appropriate, I think, to end with this art style because it kind of makes this seem like more of a, more than a comic book. right. You know, yeah, It has a very kind of prestige feel to it. Mm-hmm. And by prestige, I mean prestige format, not like it invokes the prestige, the movie with Michael Kane. Not like you're expecting how the how the trick was pulled off to be revealed in here. Right. Okay. So let's talk about these outfits. Destiny is wearing his robe and Despair is naked. Those are the boring ones. Those are the ones that are like they always are. Yep. Death is wearing a long black dress and high boots. We know that Death hates wearing dresses, so she's taking this event seriously. Yeah, and Desire is all dressed up in red, which at first made me mistake it for destruction. Right, yeah. Desire is wearing a sort of riding outfit with tights and a doublet. Yeah. Very Renaissance style. Right, it's sort of a jaunty suit from two centuries ago. Yeah. Or, Or earlier. And Delirium has a heavy black sort of black or blue leather jacket and fishnets. Right. Delirium is disappointed that destruction didn't come. Delirium also reminds us that Despair died once. She's the other Endless who has died up to this point, and the Despair who's here is the second Despair. Yeah, and we're going to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. And then we get some familiar faces. These are the residents of the Necropolis. Yeah, so these pale, creepy folk from the Necropolis Letharge. This old man is named Mulder, and he's some kind of local leader. He's the Sith Kundman. He should have a partner named Scurvy. Scurvy and Mulder? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's a good one. He recognizes the Endless from fragments of legends in Letharge's library. Right, because it has been many generations since the last time that they had any reason to interact with the residents of the Necropolis. Yeah, and even though the people from the Necropolis look like zombies, I think we're meant to understand that they're human beings with roughly human lifespans. Right, yes. They are physiologically human. They just have the aspect of the dead. Yeah. The Endless have come for the Cerements and the Book of Ritual in Letharge's keeping, Desire says. And, of course, Desire is the one who says what they want. Honored guests, I must warn you. The catacombs are deep and dark. They run for many leagues beneath the city. There are maps, but the catacombs change like a thing alive and cannot be mapped. Now, this is in keeping with the video game tradition that if there is a catacombs level, it is hard as fuck. (laughs) But Death says they appreciate the warning, but they don't need it. They are, after all, basically gods. Yes, god mode, of course, is a way to make any video game easier. Yeah. There was a boss in that game, Oni, that was fucking incredibly hard, even with god mode on. Really? Yeah, because it was like you had to like get to the center of the security system, and if you brushed any of the lasers, it would start shooting machine guns and missiles at you. So even if you were in god mode, like they wouldn't kill you, but the rockets would knock you off a ledge into the pit, and then there'd be no way to win. I see. I recently read a comic book by Frank Cho called Skyborn. Yeah? And... It concerns the children of Lazarus, who are all kind of immortal and indestructible. Okay. Except for the main bad guy. Nothing can really hurt them. Okay. But the main character is just, like, so out of practice at fighting and and in the wrong headspace for fighting Uh that even though he's indestructible, he can't can't beat anybody. (laughs) He can't do anything. He's just, like, he's fighting these big dragons and, like, gigantic monsters to try and train up for the challenges he's about to face. And he's just getting thrown all over the <laughs> place by various monsters. <laughs> he is unharmed but ineffectual at the yeah. end of every one of these fights. Exactly. <laughs> right. So this whole thing with lethargy is something that we have heard about before. We heard about this during World's End. There was a story told about a woman named Veltus. Who got lost in those catacombs. Right, she got lost in the catacombs. She found this room where there were six silver cerements and there was a voice that said that it was all right, that she could go back to the city and her master would not be mad at her, but she wanted proof, and so the room withered her hand. So this is, we have come to understand, where the burial shrouds and the ritual for the death of the Endless are kept. Right. Despair asks, which of us must go to the room? And Desire responds, none of us can go inside, not even our sister, meaning death. We need an envoy. It's interesting that Despair says must, and Desire says can. Mm, uh, yeah. Despair does not want to. Desire does want to. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So Delirium creates the Envoy out of mud with the help of Destiny and Barnabas. And this is like the first of multiple creations of a thing on a wooden frame in this set of issues? Yes. It happens at least twice. Yeah, Barnabas is carrying a stick in his mouth here, which of course is very dog like and also <laughs> very helpful at the same time. Desire carves a heart roughly above the heart, which matches up with what we saw on the cover. Despair seems to give the golem vision. Yeah, we see her poking the eye socket and smoke emerging. Death breathes life into the envoy, something she hasn't done in ages. I want to name him. A good name, though, sister. It must be a real name that people can say. Flippy Ploppy Cheese Nose? Mm, No, try again. Eblis O'Shaughnessy. Okay. Eblis O'Shaughnessy, (laughs) you were created and gifted by five of the Endless, (laughs) but you can neither dream nor ultimately destroy, and that shall be your triumph, and that shall be your tragedy. So presumably there's another envoy, Gollum, running around somewhere that has the abilities of all the Endless except to despair. Right, cannot despair. There is an eternally optimistic <laughs> golem running around. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess he does have the power to die, so maybe he isn't running maybe around. Maybe he isn't running around. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes yeah that makes sense. I like, again, the idea that because they're basically gods or functions of the universe, when they name something, it sticks. So his name is Eblos O'Shaughnessy. Even though there's no Shaughnessy that he has descended from. That's something that comes up in Nazi Boys as well. I don't remember. Fat Charlie isn't fat. It's just, oh, that, when the, it's just that when the God of right. Stories names something, it sticks. When, when the God of Stories names you Fat Charlie, everybody calls you Fat Charlie. Right. I think I forgot that Fat Charlie wasn't fat. I think I was picturing I was fat that whole book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Delirium gives Eblis a glowing jellyfish for light, and he goes... Into the cerement chamber, he finds the room with no difficulty, even though someone could spend their whole life looking for it and fail. Which of them is dead? asks a disembodied voice. Ah, scary, omnipresent voice. Yeah, it, it, the font here is like a sort of invokes like ancient text. Yeah. So yeah, super- what, whatever it is, and we will not find out what it is. It is unspeakably old. Yeah, older and more powerful than the endless. Mm-hmm. But. Eblis replies. Dream? You have come for the Ser Cloth, then, and for the ceremony. Yes? They are yours. Take them. So Eblis takes the silver ceremony with the image of Dream's mask on it. And as he leaves, he hears a low keening, like a mother sorrowing for her departed child, like the chamber itself is in mourning. Oh. (laughs) <laughs> oh, 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 this is the worst. <laughs> the part of the chamber is played today by Burton. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile in the dreaming. Yeah, Cain is still pissed about what he was pissed about at the end of the last story arc. Right, his brother Abel got killed by the Kindly Ones. He doesn't like it when people other than him kill his brother Abel. Well, when someone else does it, he doesn't come back. Well, that's, yeah, that's true. I think that's part of it. So, yeah, he bullies his way past the Corinthian to get to see Daniel, the new dream. You are Cain. Precisely so. I am Cain, and this is my contract with your predecessor. With me, Cain. I am Dream of the Endless. Your contract is with me. Yeah, I like to think that Daniel doesn't have as sort of heavy and imposing a voice, as Morpheus does. I mean, it's implied that his voice is noticeably different because he doesn't have the black speech bubbles, and he generally seems like a more approachable dream. Mm -hmm. I really like here he's talking about his contract, Kane is. He says that it was drawn up at the dawn of time and uh, reissued and amended in April of 1989. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so that would have been their first appearance in this series. Right. So he demands that Daniel recreate Abel. Daniel doesn't like being threatened, even when the threat is obviously hollow, and he reminds Cain that many were hurt in the kindly one's attack. I am not impressed by your behavior. I am—I am sorry, but my lord, my brother, please. Daniel asks for a description of him, and based on Cain's not particularly flattering description, recreates Abel. Oh yeah, I thought I was, huh, over and done with. Nonsense. Lord Morpheus brought you back right as rain. Not Morpheus. I have no right to that name. I am Dream of the Endless. That is enough. Now we cut to Eve's cave where she's talking to a despairing Matthew. She transforms from an old woman to a young one as she does. Go away. Just leave me to fuck alone. <laughs> yeah, there's a tiny little fuck there like he doesn't want to be super grumpy with Eve. He's feeling guilty because he left Morpheus to his death, even though Morpheus basically ordered him to do so to save him. He was my friend, and I left him to die. Matthew, there was nothing you could have done. I could have died. I could have died when the others died. I could have died by his side. And what good would that have done? If I died then, I wouldn't be here being miserable now. But anyway, Eve relays a message to him from the new dream, who Matthew will not acknowledge as his boss, that the wake is tonight, and the funeral is tomorrow. I heard you. Go away. As the Endless are leaving Letharge, Destiny reaches out, beckoning others to sleep. Yeah, we've got Nuala, who we are told is at one of the free houses, but not World's End. She's at one called the Toadstone. Right, so it's another free house between worlds. There's Rose Walker, who is unpacking the things that her friend Zelda left to her. One of which is a copy of Wisconsin Death Trip. I really sort of like the idea. I assume that, like, Neil Gaiman had just happened to finish reading Wisconsin Death Trip <laughs> at the time that he was writing this issue, so he slipped it in there. I'm charmed by the idea that Zelda goes to bookstores and just picks up anything with death in the title. Oh, you think that's why that title was chosen? I don't know. And then we get Richard Maddock. Now, if I'm remembering correctly, Richard Maddock is the guy who tried to keep the Muse Calliope prisoner, right? Right. He imprisoned. And uh, sexually abused, which is, I guess, how you use the powers of a muse in this comic book. The muse Calliope, who was Morpheus's ex-wife. And you have uh, not seen him in many, many issues. Yeah, he was a one-shot character who was in, I think, number 17. And Morpheus cursed him with boundless ideas. And then once he freed Calliope, it changed to a complete inability to have an, an original idea right and we are kind of told that, that has worn off apparently you know probably with the death of that iteration of dream yesterday for the first time in half a decade he had put together a handful of words in his head in an order that no one had ever put them before the fear of ideas is replaced by a sensation of utter comfort so we saw last issue with alex burgess as well who morpheus cursed in the very first issue that morpheus's curses ended with his death and even though Maddock was an asshole It's nice to know that Morpheus's vengeance ended with his death, that there's a sort of forgiveness there. And now we get two pages of Daniel making a new Mervyn pumpkin head. Yeah, he plants a seed in a little bit of dirt, he waters it, he builds a wooden frame, that's the second time, clothes it, makes basically a scarecrow, and he takes this instantly grown pumpkin and sets it on top. I was going to say it's worth noting that he doesn't carve the face, but actually I think we can infer that he does. From this panel here where he's carving the top off. Right. I think it would be cool if he just sort of animates the pumpkin and it grows a face. (laughs) The eyes and mouth just open. (laughs) Right yeah exactly but that does not seem to be what happened. (laughs) Yeah but Merv is instantly himself again. He walks out of this room sees the Corinthian and says so what the hell do you think you're looking at? More people falling asleep. Yep Lida has most of her mind back. She's cleaned out her bank account and is running. She was warned by Thessaly in the last issue that people would try to kill her for her role in Dream's death. Yeah, and she's sort of looking for Carla, but has a feeling that Carla is probably dead. Carla, of course, was murdered by Loki during The Kindly Ones. Right. She's also sitting at a desk in front of a sort of makeup mirror, right? Which is a recurring motif in The Kindly Ones. She kept seeing herself in mirrors in her dreams. True. Also going Betty by Alexander Burgess. Yeah, he wants to stay awake forever, having been trapped in nightmares for so long, but he can't. And Hob Gadling, he is contemplating the creation of a new identity. It's time for him to fake his own death again. Yeah, his wife Audrey was killed in a car accident at the beginning of the Kindly Ones, so he sort of got a reason to leave the life he's been living. In the house, Hob left to himself in a room filled with papers and maps. Hob dreams. I also like this bit that. He wants to go somewhere new, but there isn't somewhere new. He's been everywhere. There's only places to return. Yeah, he wants to go somewhere, not to return somewhere. I really like that line as well. Back in the Dreaming, Daniel is looking to recreate Fiddler's Green. What exactly do you think you are doing? I am healing you, creating you, giving you life. I am bringing you back from the dead. Gilbert, aka Fiddler's Green, does not approve Of being brought back to life. It makes his death meaningless. I lived a good life, and it ended. Would you take that away from me? But I would give you back your life, Gilbert. I understand perfectly what you are offering. I am, however, declining it with thanks. I see. I think I see. Very well. You may go. So that's an interesting moment, both of sort of holding Dream to account for his actions and the kindly ones, for allowing him to be killed in the first place, and just sort of generally reminding us that death is part of life. Yeah. Now we've got more funeral attendees, but these are the types of folk that do not need to fall asleep to go to the dreaming. Right. Titania, Queen of Fairy, Duma, the angel who's currently ruling hell. Yes, he has the key to hell. It was so important in Season of Mists around his neck. And then there's Bast, who, in a very kind of American gods moment, has to... She has to take the awe... Felt by a teenage boy at a cat show, and turned that into the power that she needs to open a portal to the dreaming. Yeah, and she also sort of rejuvenates herself. She's been she's been old. She becomes young and beautiful again. It's sort of interesting how the premise here is that cats are little are little worshipped these days. Right. It seems to me that they are the dominant species on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, if devotion to a cat counts as worship of Bast, then she should be fine. (laughs) Right. And then we get all of the... Well, not all of them, but many of the attendees that we saw heading for the Dreaming in the previous pages are now heading down a stairway that seems quite like the one ascended by Orpheus. Mm, Okay, yeah. The path in or out of Hades. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth noting here that they dream themselves in shapes that are not exactly the ones that they live. Alex still dreams himself as a small child, and Hob as the 14th century man that he was born as. Right. Chiron the centaur arrives, who we met in World's End. Hob, who has experienced too much loss recently, tries to give him a bit of a punching up, but it doesn't go well. Right, at Chiron delivering the news that Morpheus has died. He can't be dead! You're lying! No, he's not lying, Bast says. You gotta say it with more of a purr. Try doing, try doing like an Earth a kid thing. Well, that's difficult to do. I'm not Earth a kid. <laughs> you are. <laughs> ah, she was great. Here here. No, he's not lying. I just slurred the end there. That doesn't any different. It's so... only Julie Newmar were right? here. <laughs> Well, maybe we should contact Lee Merriweather. She does voice work. Yeah, yeah, she could probably handle it. <laughs> Would you like to come on our podcast and do two lines of dialogue as fast? <laughs> Can we think of any other Catwoman actors? Well, Gray Delisle, um, but Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer, yeah. Not Halle Berry. Um, Adrienne Barbeau. Who's that? She was in the movie Crease. Greece. That's, she was in Greece. That's like her best known live action credit. She okay. also did Catwoman in the animated series. I see. Okay. Well, that's probably what I know her from. Sadly, it's probably Greece. <laughs> I've seen Eliza Greece. Dishku also. In, uh-huh. in some of the Eliza Dishku in some of the straight to video movies. Oh I see. I did not know that. I have seen Greece so many times. I've never wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Greece. I don't especially want to. <laughs> Anyway, Hob is shocked by the arrival of some other figures, and when I say that they have impressive figures, what I mean is that they are 60 or 70 feet tall. Yeah, there's a part, it's not in this issue, but there's a part where they're, we're told they're the size of storm clouds. Yeah. Which I think is a great visual, and it actually kind of fits with this visual here of them looming over the tiny humans. Yeah, this is directly reminiscent of the Funerary procession that we saw walking through the sky at the end of World's End. I want to go back to Hob just for a second here. I think his line here, he can't be dead, he's my friend, mm-hmm. is very affecting. Hob, everybody in his life kind of comes and goes, you know? Yeah. As an inevitable result of his longevity. Hob is immortal, one of the very few immortals that he knows. Right, exactly. He was never counting on his own immortality, outlasting dreams. Right, yeah. So it's not just that he's lost a friend; he's lost he's lost one of the few friends who can go on with him into the next hundred and thousand years. Right. And and maybe maybe he won't. I don't know. Won't what? Maybe he won't have to go on that much further. Oh, I see. Being that his deal with Dream is concluded in much the same way that in much the same way that Alex Burgess and Richard Maddock got left off got oh, let I off see. the hook, he might get let off the hook as well. Could be. I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that, and my feeling is that his deal was really with Death. She's the one who's not taking him, and she lasts as long as the universe. Yeah, that's true. But Death might feel that her uh, deal with Dream to keep him alive has concluded. True. It's possible. Mother of God! What are they? They are the family. So that brings us to Sandman number 71, in which a wake is held. Is the cover a dead bird? Yeah, a dead baby bird lying in a red egg. It's a phoenix. Oh, I get it. <laughs> We've got these super tall people. This is where we're told there is largest storm clouds, and they are building a building. Yeah, a house of remembrance. The Endless are building it by hand, brick by brick. Now, the symbolism here is really powerful. Mm-hmm. The really imposing, very impressive figures of the Endless are the ones who are laboring, yes. while the mortals, the humans, just watch. Which sort of goes back to the idea that like they are functions of the universe they are laborers right they serve existence and they serve i don't want to say humanity because all the species of the universe by accomplishing their functions it goes back to the conversation that morpheus and desire had in the doll's house of whether they are the masters or the servants yeah and we are told everybody's here you're here yeah everybody in the universe is dreaming this moment. Here's a sort of weird interaction between two dreamers. Their conversation just like reminding us that they are still in a dream, that dream logic governs their thoughts. Do you have a handkerchief? Right, he has a... He doesn't have a handkerchief, but he offers offers her a piece of cloth from the curtains that hung over his bed as a child. I remember the way the sunlight would creep over and touch it in the morning. This was the friendly curtain, the one on the right. The one on the left I knew somehow was unfriendly. She asks if he can use it. He asks, are you crying? She says, no, I'm bleeding. And we can see that it's true. Right, she's crying blood. So there's no particular reason for that. It's just dream logic. Like Lasheef. Mm, yes. Maybe she lost a lot at uh, high stakes Texas Hold'em poker. Could be. Although, at the time that this was written, Texas Hold'em wasn't that popular of a format. Mm, so maybe it was five-card stud. I think, y- yes, I think that's. A, I think we've come to the exact <laughs> conclusion as to what probably happened. Neil Gaiman is listening to this like, like, they're the first ones to have properly understood my book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going to try anyway. Daniel, meanwhile, is watching several dreams shuffle out of the palace for the funeral. including the shuffle? Oh, oh, okay. Uh, In- done. There you go. Uh, including the rabbit and his wife, who we met a couple of issues ago, and topless pirate lady, who is just still a really awesome looking design. Uh, and the fashion thing. Yes, indeed. Who's the guy with the turban? Oh, you know what? He's Teramus, the chef. We saw him serving food to Dream and Delirium at the beginning of Brief Lives. Oh, okay. According to custom, Daniel can't go. Not according to the Book of the Ceremony. No, the family may not greet you nor formally recognize you until the funeral matters are over with and done. Thank you. Gotta get ceremony. You <laughs> just wanted me to say that in the Michael Caine voice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyway, he lets Eblis and Lucian go to the funeral. Eblis is confused. If that guy was Dream, then whose wake is this? So, who died? Nobody died, Cain says. How can you kill an idea? How can you kill the personification of an action? Then, who were you mourning? Uh, A point of view, Abel says. Secret! You told another secret! You! You witless, jelly-bellied, gusset-sniffing dunce! I ought to! Kane, Not today. And they all walk off together. Now we get to the ex-girlfriend cluster at the wake, where Calliope is recalling to Titania and Thessaly what it was like to be in love with Morpheus. Titania is an ex of Morpheus? No! She just wants people to think she is. We're gonna come back to that. Okay. She says that they had already begun to drift apart when she had Orpheus. Morpheus loved the boy at first, but after Eurydice died, the Endless encouraged Orpheusness in his foolishness. And Morpheus never forgave her for saying that she hated him after what he did to Orpheus, at least not until Sandman number 17. Right, when he rescued her from Matic. Right. Yeah, she says there's a moment where she could have loved him once more. And I think that's the moment when, when he rescued her. Right, right. I'm not here to mourn him. I mourned the loss of my love a long time ago. I'm here to say goodbye to a stranger who once did me a good turn, and to the man who gave my son the death he craved. Now we have... is this a raven? That's Matthew. Oh, it is Matthew. Okay, so yes, it's a raven. Yes. He lands among the mortals and asks, What the hell is going on here? Yeah, this fellow explains that they're going to be let into the mausoleum at dawn, but for now it's the wake, drinking and talking. And furthermore, that there is no way he knows this. He just knew it, like you know things in a dream. You know, Bertie, talking to dreamers is like talking to zombies or something. I don't know why you even try. Yeah, now, Matthew is not at all happy to see Mervin. At least he's very much surprised by it. Now, I I can handle both voices in this exchange. That's, this is going to be a problem. (laughs) Mervin? Yo, you're dead. Nope, it ain't my funeral. Never felt better. (laughs) You're dead, goddammit. You were destroyed by the Kindly ones. You were blown to friggin' bits. So? You're not Merv. Not Merv? Right. What am I am if not me, huh? Sharp liver? (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) No, 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 relax. I've got... (laughs) I don't know if you followed all of that, but, uh, but yeah, Merv discloses that the new dream brought him back, and Matthew's kind of pissed about it. He's just, like, he's not upset that Merv is alive. He doesn't hate Merv, but he is, like, not accepting this as Merv. Hey, Bird, you want a drink? Screw you. Matthew flies to the castle to grump at Daniel. Matthew, you were my friend. I was his friend. I'm not your anything. This is very new to me, Matthew. This place, the world. I have existed since the beginning of time. This is a true thing. I am older than worlds and sons and gods. But tomorrow I will meet my brother and sisters for the first time, and I am afraid. Yeah, getting a little insight into Daniel here. I also like this sort of two-panel interaction where he starts to turn into the fearful countenance of dream and then relaxes. He's willing to put up with a little more presumption than Morpheus was. Back at The Wake. We get nearly a full page of Mad Hetty, which is just fantastic. But actually, I guess it is a full page. It's more than a full page of Mad Hetty. Yeah, Mad Hetty, incidentally. Okay, so she's a homeless woman in London and sometimes Gotham who is over 200 years old, at least. Right. And she dreams herself young. But my point was just going to be that, like, I think... Hers is a very difficult voice to do, and there's a lot of stuff, (laughs) a lot of dialogue here. Yeah, um, she remembers that Morpheus would always stop for a chat and give her a coin. Usually rare, valuable ones, but she never spent them. She still has all of them hidden away somewhere. I guess you can just do kind of an Eliza Doolittle thing. Yeah, that's basically it. Here, you hurry up with that there bottle. There's some of us haven't had any yet. And then he'd turn to go on his way, and he'd wish me pleasant dreams. And I'd say to him, well, Sonny Jim, that's rather up to you, isn't it? <laughs> he liked that. I could see he liked that. Then he'd go off on his way. I never really knew if he was laughing at me or not. But when all's said and done, he was all right. Poor old bugger. Meanwhile, Cloricon is trying to comfort Nuala. She points out that if she hadn't loved Morpheus, he wouldn't have died. If I had not loved him, he would not have died. See, oh, yeah, you're right. She does say that. It was not your fault that he died. No, but I loved him as deeply and as well as as any man was loved by a woman. And because I loved him, he is dead. She also reminds him of the poem that he gave her. Be sure your sins will find you out. Not one of my poems. Indeed, a rather trite sentiment. Do not lie to me, Clericon. You came to me three times, disguised as a buggered, and you told me your poem. Of course it was you. You removed your glamour from me at the end. And there's not a one of us that can remove a glamour placed by another. Right. Noala didn't want to look artificially beautiful anymore. She wanted to look like the kind of pixie-ish creature that she is. And as they have this exchange, there's a mysterious figure wrapped in a white robe drawing nearer. Yeah, and he solves the mystery of the missing glamour. He pulls off his hood, and he is Cluricon with horns. Well, at first he is without horns, and then he grows antlers. Yeah, this is Cloricon's nemesis that he created towards the beginning of Kindly Ones when he was wandering around the dream castle like an idiot. Now, oh, I like that Cloricon says that the nemesis could fool those who haven't made such a study of my face as I have. <laughs> Cloricon goes on to ask, Aren't you meant to be busily trying to destroy me or something? At a wake? Where would be the manners in me if I tried such a thing? No, it's my own sweet time about the task I'll be taking. And it won't be in the dreaming where I was born, nor in fairy where you began, but in the wide worlds between I'll come for you. Hide and run how you may. You'd have to travel hard and long to find anyone who ever got the better of Chloricon. And you don't scare me, sir. Not one jot nor tittle. His nemesis goes away, and he turns to the topless pirate lady and says, If there's a bottle about, or a cask, or a barrel, I'd not be saying no to a swig or three. <laughs> and he takes, he takes a long swig... And stands there looking disconsolate, and then (laughs) tries to fake a grin, which comes off as incredibly phony. Now, as Chloricon is trying to lose himself in the party, we cut back to Titania, who refuses to divulge her relationship with Morpheus, or her memories of him. She pretends that they are very private. They are my memories, after all. And no more to be shared than I imagine the Lord Shaper's memories of me would have been, were he alive, were I dead. So she's being very eloquent. She is also lying. Yeah, still pretending that there was something between them, or still faintly hoping that there was something between them. She's basically gone to this funeral to play the closed-mouthed mistress, even though she wasn't. (laughs) Yeah. Poor Titania. And was only vaguely aware of who was in charge of Fairyland. It's Scotty Young. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the throne room, Daniel reveals that he saved Matthew's life. Yeah, speaking of characters who are lying. Oh. <laughs> it should have been your blood spilled on the throne of the Dream King. The Corinthian was to have killed you. So why didn't he? Because I did not wish it. I summoned the Nivis. I changed the Corinthian's mind. Yeah, now there had been a vision that some blood would be spilled on the dream throne and we thought that it would be Matthew. He was actually perched on the back of it at one point. There was a scene where the Corinthian threw a knife at him, but it turned out to be to kill a spider that was sneaking up on him. That's the Nibis. Right, exactly. Yeah. Matthew says that's ridiculous because Daniel was only a baby at that time. And you were once a man, Matthew. Were you entirely without power even then? I don't know if this is what he's talking about, but Matthew Cable actually had pretty strong reality warping powers when he was alive, although he didn't really use them himself. Didn't really use them until he got possessed by Anton Arcane, right? Right. Asterisk. Swamp Fang. Yeah, all of this happened in Swamp Fang. At this point, Daniel asks if Matthew would rather be dead. Maybe. Can you send me on? To wherever it is that Ravens go when they've had enough? After tonight's wake, Matthew. After tomorrow's ceremony. Come to me then if you still wish to move on. I shall not prevent you. It shall occur. So Matthew has been worried about where ravens go when they stop being Dreams Raven for some time, and now he's strongly considering... Yeah, I always thought it was dread, but maybe it's a little bit of anticipation. Yeah, well, and he's he's lost Morpheus. He feels like he's lost his purpose in the dreaming. He feels this survivor's guilt for having left Morpheus in the situation where he died. So... For now, he seems to have accepted Daniel's offer after the funeral. He has what I think is a mostly pointless conversation with the Griffin that I think we can kind of skip. Well, yeah, I, I I want to note that the guardians were given permission to attend the funeral, but they chose to stay because they are guardians, which is kind of reiterating like you can't change your nature. This is who they are, so this is what they choose. Yeah, and basically, Matthew is surprised to learn the Griffin is not a dream construct. Right. The Griffin is a real Griffin who was requested by Morpheus from the land where griffins live, and the land where griffins live happily acquiesced and sent their bravest and boldest. Right, and this griffin that is here now is not resurrected. He is the successor to the griffin who died. Right. Back amongst the common folks, Rose, who is actually Rose, is with a copy of Jed, who is not actually Jed. Oh, Is that your read? I thought it was Jed, it's just that they may not necessarily remember what happens here. I thought that that was her dream of Jed, rather than Jed himself. Okay. I bet you can find that somewhere if you look for it. Okay. It's worth noting that the real Jed must be somewhere at the wake, because every living thing in the universe is dreaming this. I'm not 100% sure on that point either. Well, that would seem to imply that everybody is asleep. Yeah, everybody would have to be asleep at the same time destiny went out of his way to make sure that the appropriate people were asleep. Yeah. So that certainly seems to entail that some people are awake. It's just that you aren't. Right. <laughs> whoever, yeah. whoever you are, reader, listener, you, the reader, are in a dream right now. Anyway, Rose meets Lyda, and they have a little heart to heart. Rose reminds Lida that she used to babysit Daniel. She's been wondering what happened to Lida and Danielle and Carla. I keep expecting you or Carla to get back in touch. Afraid I kind of got involved in my own shit. But I've thought about you a lot. Went upstairs a few times when I got back to L.A., but nobody ever answered the door. Rose asks who this party is for. A monster. They are celebrating the death of a monster, Lida says. Rose decides to let Lida in on a bit of a secret. uh, That she's pregnant. Not hardly very pregnant at all, but I am. Kill it, Rose Walker. Kill it now. Kill it before it breaks your heart. Rose is quite understandably put off by this advice. I don't think so. Good seeing you. Say hi to Carla for me. And as they walk away, <laughs> Jed mentions that he recognizes that woman. Weird. She and her old man used to live in my head. This is true. You can read all about it in doll's house. So Matthew's getting ready to fuck off when along comes Lucian with a friend of his named Batari. This is the Indian prince fellow from Hobbes Leviathan, the other immortal. Oh, that super misogynist guy. Yeah, that's the guy. That's who it is. They're trying to get Matthew to stay for a drink. Matthew says, I don't drink. I stopped drinking the hard way. The night can make a man more brave, but not more sober. I take your point. Yeah, Lucian is literally reciting from the Swamp Thing issue in which Matthew Cable died. And if we didn't know he was Matthew Cable before, we certainly do now. Lucian! Why did it happen? Why did he let it happen? Yeah, this is one of the most important lines in the series, I think, as Lucian answers. Let it, Matthew? I think he did a little more than let it happen. Charitably, I think, sometimes, perhaps, one must change or die. And in the end, there were, perhaps, limits to how much he could let himself change. Yeah. Apropos of nothing, now we get two pages of Thessaly talking. There is kind of a talking head aspect to these issues, and I think they are all talking to people. It's just that sometimes we don't see them, so it's like we're interviewing these people on TV. She's talking to the people who made that movie in Scranton. Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. She says she was done with men a long time ago. She says she saw Morpheus at first as a worthy adversary, and he was impressed that she wasn't impressed. Which is what you said. That was your read on it mm, as yeah. well. She says she doesn't think she ever really loved him, just reflected his love back like the moon to the sun. Well, it's interesting. She's basically her whole point in this two-page monologue is about how she never really cared. But by the end of it, we, we see uh, the tears are flowing freely down her cheeks. So she sort of betrays herself a little bit. Right. She swore she would never shed another tear for him, but she is crying here. She sort of simultaneously hates him, and if not still loves him, at least misses him, or regrets her involvement in his death a little bit, which is the way we saw her at the end of Kindly Ones. This makes you wonder, though, at the time that Morpheus died, death suggested that he had had a big hand in the events that led up to that, all the way back, perhaps, to the beginning of the series. Is it overreaching, you think, to suggest that He dated Thessaly and broke up with her just so she would be pissed at him and play her role. That is an interesting take on it. I will say once again, as I said in our previous Sandman episode, that I don't think Morpheus really decided to end his own life until after he had to kill Orpheus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his breakup with Thessaly was before that. That's true, yeah. I will say, I think it's interesting that the, the two of them apparently had this epic night together. She says they, have a, they had a conversation their first night that stretched over many weeks. Right. To be kind of blunt about it, I think that Cecily is a character who never really had a strong, consistent characterization. Okay. And, these, and this sort of two-page monologue that she gives here, I think really kind of underscores the weakness in that character. Okay, so you don't feel like the contradiction in her attitudes toward Morpheus or in her attitudes toward, like, people in general is so much a contradiction in her character? as it a failure to be written consistently? Yeah, I, I think that... Yeah, I think that she's almost more of an image than a character. Okay. It's sort of like, like, just gotta be a sucker, <laughs> You know, like, everything that Thessaly does serves the plot. Okay. Or if not the plot, at least it serves to create a kind of badass moment. Okay. You know, she's basically a walking badass moment. Okay, so like in in Game of You, when she has the know-how and the will, despite not caring about any of her housemates, to bring everybody into the dreaming, that's what she does. Right. And then when somebody is needed to break up with Morpheus and make him depressed at the start of brief lives, there she is again. Yeah. And then when somebody with mystical knowledge is needed to protect Lyda so that Morpheus dies, and ki- kindly ones, there she is again. Yeah, although that was the one sort of instance, that's the one time that she popped up that I actually thought she was written really well. Okay. Because her conversation with Morpheus is just so perfectly the quintessential conversation between exes. Mm-hmm. You know, so that that characterization at least worked. <laughs> it's, like, uniquely hurtful in a way that only two people who are intimate can be. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was gonna say, it's like, it's kind of Gadling the way that she thinks that she is over this shit, and she is not. She never really gets over her shit. Right. And that's something that Hobb has sort of suggested over over and over. People don't really change. He's kind of the same guy he was in the 14th century. Yeah. Now, on the next page, we find Superman, Batman, and the Martian Manhunter here, making some meta jokes. Well. Yeah. To be more precise, it's Clark Kent, Batman, and the Martian Manhunter. Oh, that's a really interesting point, which is that Batman is dreaming himself Batman while Superman is dreaming himself Clark. Yeah. Superman mentions a bunch of weird dreams he's had, which are references to, like, imaginary stories from the 50s and 60s. And then he says, the one I hate is where I'm just an actor on a strange television version of my life. Batman recognizes this dream, but the Martian Manhunter has never had it. At this time, the Martian Manhunter had never been on TV. Right. He was played by that guy from Homeland on Supergirl, though. Oh, Dorian Harewood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's played by Kara Lumbly in the Justice League cartoon. Oh, okay. I didn't know about that. Do you remember how they spend the night inside a flower in that Heinlein book? Oh, sure, in Red Planet. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just the fact that he's Martian that made me think of that. Oh, yeah, okay. But do you think that, like, I mean, he's a shapeshifter, right? Do you think his true form is just like a big flower that people could use as a house if they wanted to? And he's just assuming the form of a man? I mean, a big green man, but a man more or less? I mean, I know what his true form is, right? Sure, I've seen enough of the cartoons. He's basically human with kind of more snaky features. Snaky? Yeah, I mean, I could show you a picture, but he, see- does, he does modify himself to look more human. At least that is my understanding of the character. Okay, so I have not read enough Martian Manhunter to be familiar with his true form. But he has one and we've seen it, is what you're saying. Yeah. At least in the Justice League show, I'm not sure how accurate that is. That is basically my definitive version of the character. Sorry. They did a good job. I just remember for a long time he was posing as a uh, an African-American guy named Bloodwind. Oh, for fuck's sake. was part of the JLA. <laughs> he also has... A 12-issue maxi-series drawn by Riley Rossmo, which kind of details his life on Mars. Fascinating. Riley Rossmo, you remember, is the guy. He drew Deathbed, which we read yes. issue number one on this podcast. He also drew Batman the Shadow. I read an interesting notion somewhere a while back that Martian Manhunter actually spends most of his time in South America. Like, Superman and Batman have got North America, and he's in South America, and so he is actually, like, considered the big hero down there, and everybody thinks of him as Superman. That's kind of cool. But, yeah, I think my personal headcanon is that his true form is a big old flower. (laughs) All right. Big enough for people to live inside. (laughs) And it, like, closes up at night and opens up again during the day. Yeah. Which is, like, that was the only way that they could breathe, right? Their rebreathers were broken. Am I remembering this correctly? Oh. It's tough to remember exactly what was in the book and what was in the TV miniseries. Because we watched that miniseries super young. But yeah, I think the idea is that, like, the plant's photosynthesizing, so it's actually producing oxygen. Right. And that's why they have to stay in it overnight. Yeah. It's, like, a very clever way to stretch their air. Yeah. That cartoon was cool. (laughs) But not by vertical. True. True. Next up, we see John Constantine greeting Dr. Occult and the Phantom Stranger. Nice trench coat. (laughs) Now, Matthew visits the family, the Endless. They're in their formal wear now. Death has changed to a pink dress, Delirium to, I would say, a fairy costume, and Desire is in a black frock coat. Who's in a fairy costume? Delirium. Oh, sure, I see what you mean. Oh, she's even got wings on there. Yep. She will turn you a pumpkin into a coach. Just give her a chance. Matthew mentions that Death is not wearing black. Death wears black all the time, except to funerals, apparently. Right. Delirium mentions that this is the heart of the Dreaming. Matthew thought the castle was the heart of the Dreaming. Turns out it has many hearts. Are you telling me the Dreaming has two hearts? Desire. More than that, little brave bird. Many, many more than that. Desire's Realm, remember, has only one heart, since Desire's Realm is an enormous copy of its body. Hmm, right. Are we sure it's not no heart? Desire lives in the heart. This is established. But Desire is kind of a heartless character. Mean, yeah. Well, yeah. Heartless in that sense. But also in the sense that it will try to kill you in Kingdom Hearts. Oh, I see. Yeah. Like, okay. But do you think Desire has a nobody? I mean, Desire is pretty powerful. Desire will just spring up out of the ground and like, you know, get you. <laughs> what happened to Morpheus. (laughs) This fucking reference. (laughs) When he wasn't, when he wasn't looking. (laughs) Boom, right out of the ground. Destiny says Matthew was close to Dream. Nobody was close to your brother. Not unless you're talking about astronomical distances, you know. The sun is close to Alpha Centauri. He, he wasn't very good at close. Nonetheless, Destiny invites him to say a few words at the funeral. Do I have any choice? Of course you do. You can refuse. But Matthew says, I'll do it. Yep, and then the Endless fade away, having taken up their places for the funeral. It's dawn. And before they head off, Matthew recalls a bit of Tom Sawyer to Barnabas the bit where the kids turn up halfway through their own funeral. He says he keeps hoping that Morpheus will turn up in the midst of his own funeral. The reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated, Matthew. He'll say. Wouldn't that be just like him? Not really. No. Come on, there's going to be a few billion people here today. We better get in early if we want to get a good seat. All right, on the cover of Sandman number 72, in which we wake, what we have here is like a flower, but with an eye on each petal. That's kind of an unsettling image. Gross. I'm thinking maybe that represents, like, the facets of something, like the endless. Each one sort of appears to be a living thing, even though it's just a fragment. I think maybe it represents that Dave McKeon was like, I've made this truly disturbing piece of artwork. Can you use it, Neil? (laughs) (laughs) I would hate for nobody to be freaked out by this thing I made. Yeah. (laughs) We open on a shot overlooking the billions of mourners at dawn. And this is beautiful. Yeah, this is approaching Sam Keith levels of good here. (laughs) That man knew how to draw a crowd scene. The stone doors of the mausoleum open and everyone enters. The mourners take their seats knowing which one is theirs without direction. As if their every action were written long ago in a book. But which book? says the narration. And at this moment we see both Destiny with his book and Eblis with the book of ceremony. You have the ceremony? Destiny asks Eblis. Yes lord I do. Then bring it forth and lay it down in its appointed place. So he lays it down on the stone slab And as he lays it down, it takes the shape of Morpheus's body underneath it. Yeah, that was a cool bit. There's no body there, but he, yeah, it just sort of inflates. (laughs) Maybe it, like, captures some remnant essence of Morpheus and forms it into the shape of the body. I'm just speculating now. A wizard did it. (laughs) That's probably it. (laughs) Now, Destiny decides to kick things off. And he manages to give a eulogy in which he says almost nothing at all. That's true. He says that he has little to say. He says, he sort of says that he never understood Morpheus because he's the lord of what is and Morpheus is the lord of what isn't. Yeah, and he almost says it by way of like an excuse for not saying much. Mm -hmm. Mad Hetty even notes, he's reading, he's reading what he's saying out of his book. But of course he would be, because his book contains what he happens to say at this moment. Here I know you. You're Bobby Waspface. Thing Gadlink. I thought you'd be dead for sure by now. Not me, Mad Hetty, not yet. Well bugger me sideways with a coracle if that doesn't take the porridge. Um okay, well, we're done here. <laughs> Thank you, Mad Hetty, for that image! <laughs> So they both noticed that the other is an (laughs) immortal. Right. Yeah, they both have this big secret that they're living forever, and now they are each in on it. Yeah. Back at the Dreamcastle, Daniel seems a little depressed about not getting to go. He's chatting with the Guardians, and Hippogriff points out a difference between Daniel and Morpheus. Our Lord would not have done as you are doing. In the thousands of years that I served him, he did not touch me. No. He fed me slices of apple with his hands, though, from time to time. Daniel has been sort of petting all the guardians, scratching and stroking their fur and stuff. My lord, there is someone coming. How strange. I would not have expected visitors on this day. Do you recognize him, any of you? No, my lord. Do you? I... I'm not certain. Back at the funeral, Bast is speaking. Yeah, we were never lovers and we never will be now. She says she doesn't regret that. But she does regret that she never told him. How happy she always was in his presence. hmm And she finishes off by saying, He is gone, and I am old. In the audience, we see Jed and Rose, who are seated between Emperor Norton and Darkseid. Holy shit, that's Darkseid there. Jed asks if Rose is really pregnant, and she is. She says she's going to keep it, and she's going to tell her family about it eventually. The next to speak is Desire, who stops to light a cigarette in the middle of the speech it likes lighting cigarettes. Yeah, it only lights it once this time, I'm surprised. Desire talks about the bonds of family. Had we not been family, why then we could have had nothing to do with each other, and both of our lives would have been enriched. Instead, we were siblings, and this was, to say the least, unfortunate. Yeah, we never really saw Dream do anything to vex Desire in any way, or at least we only saw one minor instance of it. When Dream ruined their bet with Joshua Norton by, well, won their bet by giving him a dream that kept him out of their realms. Right, in the in the Emperor Norton episode. Yeah. But Desire seemed to have a sort of single-minded focus on destroying Dream. Yeah. At the castle, we recognize Daniel's visitor as destruction. He says he's not going to the ceremony. Daniel offers him food, and he definitely wants those things. Yes, bread and cheese and ale, specifically. Yeah, and the kitchen staff are at the funeral, so Daniel takes him to the kitchen himself to fix him some food. This is a very Daniel is not Morpheus moment. Right. Destruction mentions Wensleydale cheese here a couple times. I only mention this because Wensleydale is a character in Gaiman and Terry Pratchett's novel Good Omens. Maybe Gaiman thought that word was funny for a number of years. Food of the gods. Olympus practically ran on Wensleydale. Daniel recognizes Destruction as his brother, even though they've never met, and Destruction says he's here to give some free advice. Things change, don't they? Yes, they do. Wise lad. So he's saying maybe don't be as set in your ways. Yeah, he's already recognizing that that Daniel will be less set in his ways than Morpheus, and that's going to be good for him. There's something sort of iconic here about the characterization of Morpheus as like as old as time and therefore rigid and inflexible. Yeah. And Daniel as a baby. (laughs) You know, and therefore much more sort of pliant. Yeah, I think that's right. Once again, Gaiman has a talent for sort of creating characters who have their particularities and are sort of fleshed out, but at the same time retain like their symbolic value. Okay, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Now at the funeral, it is Despair's turn to speak. Despair says she admired his certainty. She does everything in doubt. She says the second brother she's lost and it hurts. She mentions how she's probably the only one who thinks of the first despair who's been gone a hundred thousand years. Death or life will take him from your minds, I know. But I shall remember him. Very hard to look at. As usual, Despair is cutting herself with her pain ring. Yeah. Throughout this monologue and then wesley dodds takes the stage yeah wesley dodds is the golden age sandman the original dc sandman yeah i'm not a young man anymore i'm retired now but sometimes i think that all the things in my life that have made it worth the living have been as a result of my connection to the dead gentleman that's sort of a nice thing for him to say in this series, we learned in the very first issue that like Wesley Dodds just had a sense that something was missing in the universe, and that's why he became the Sandman. Yeah, in a weird way, he was one of the people affected by the Sleepy Sickness, although not. It didn't seem to fuck up his sleep all that much. Right, not as directly. But I think it was a trait of the original Sandman that like he had trouble sleeping because he sensed evil. Right. Yeah, and so he put on the gas mask, which protected him from the sleeping gas he shot at people, but it also made him look like Morpheus's battle helmet. Yes. And as he walks off, there are feet over his head, and Dumas lowers into frame. And Dumas is mute. He says nothing, but a tear falls. And as it does, everybody understands that existence has a purpose and that they are part of it. They're sort of reassured of the existence of God by Dumas' tear. Backstage, folks are lined up waiting for their turns to speak. Odin is one of them. And Eblis takes Matthew aside and asks if he's willing to follow the Lady Delirium. What do I say? Say whatever is in your heart. Delirium, for her part, does not want to speak, but Destiny makes her. He was my big brother. He really was. I was always a bit scared of him, but I'm not scared of him anymore. I'm a bit sad of him instead. Okay, that's all. Back in the Dream Palace. You know, you could leave all this. It'll carry on all right without you. Come out with me and walk the stars. It's astonishing how much trouble one can get oneself into if one works at it, and astonishing how much trouble one can get oneself out of if one simply assumes that everything will, somehow or other, work out for the best. Daniel thanks him for the advice. All will be well. Entropy and Optimism, the twin forces that make the universe go round. Destruction cheers him up about meeting the others, and as he leaves, he says they may meet again someday. I want to mention that the dream palace looks really cool on this page. It already looks kind of different than it did under Morpheus. There are windows open to the air and it's all in white. Right. It looks a little more open. The line about entropy and optimism struck me too. As the force of destruction, destruction knows that everything ends. The universe goes on basically by not thinking about it, he's saying. That's the optimism. Right. Back at the funeral. I was told to say whatever was in my heart. And I thought I was going to say something about how he was my boss and how he gave me a second chance and how he trusted me. I was going to say something about how he died and about how that was what I wanted to do, too. But that isn't what is in my heart. Not really. He was the most important person in the world to me, and he's gone. And the kid, Daniel, well, he was a good kid. And he's gone, too. But you can't kill dreams. Not really. Lucifer listens to this broodingly with Mazikeen on his arm. What's in my heart? A lot of sorrow, a little regret, and the memory of the coolest, strangest, most infuriating boss, friend, boss I ever had. That's what. More people speak, but the comic tells us we don't need to recount them all after all you were there. These include the Aldermen, Odin, Shivering Jemmy, the representative of Chaos, Faramond, and Alionora. You don't quite remember them, we are told, but they will haunt your sleep until you die. Worth noting in the top right of this panel, showing some of the mortal dreamers, the two in the back here are Neil Gaiman in the sunglasses and Michael Zooli there with the Shakespeare mustache. Is that a bear? That's the alderman. Oh, of course. Okay. It's not just like somebody came up with the ultimate prank. (laughs) (laughs) we met a bear! (laughs) Now without any transition, as in a dream, the mausoleum is suddenly a bridge. Has the building become a bridge? Was it always this way? Or have you left the mausoleum far behind on some dark transitional journey? You cannot tell, but what you had mistaken for a bier is now unquestionably a boat. The boat carrying the body or empty cerement that looks like a body floats under the bridge and down this river. Now the girl in the red dress talks to you as the boat begins its passage down the slow stream, and her words make sense of everything. She gives you peace. She gives you meaning. This is death, of course. and there again, the idea that, that death gives life meaning. As well, the idea that meeting this death is usually a pretty peaceful experience. Now we, the audience, the readers, the dreamers, float high above the world and watch We see a little Chinese boy by a river watching the boat. Yeah, who is this? Okay, so I thought the young Chinese boy might be the Oxdrover from Sandman number 47. Death was hanging out with him on her one mortal day in the century. The outfit that he's wearing looks kind of similar, although his hair is different. That guy had a ponytail. I'm not sure what that would mean if that's him. Maybe that Death liked him, so he's allowed to stay in her realm. So seeing him means that Morpheus has transitioned to the realm of Death. Ralph Hildebrandt from Annotated Sandman makes an alternate suggestion that makes a lot of sense. This is Nada. We saw at the end of Season of Mists she was reincarnated as a boy in Hong Kong. Oh, okay. That does make sense. The kid is throwing blue roses, and although we haven't really seen that symbol associated with anybody, we did see roses in the room where Nada had her conversation with Morpheus at the end of Season of Mists, and sort of a blue heart was a symbol for her or symbols associated with her in her first appearance in Sandman number nine. Right, that's true. While I'm talking about roses, I do want to go back and call something out, which is that when anybody is speaking at the funeral, the flowers actually change to reflect them. So they are red roses with desire, black dying roses with despair, and lawn flamingos, and octopi with delirium. There's some kind of blue flower for Wesley Dodds. Is this Orpheus here? Right, so the boat changes as it goes, it's prow becomes Morpheus's mask, and then his face, and it passes by a dock where we see Orpheus watching. And then with the prow becoming a pair of hands holding the ruby dreamstone, the boat slips over a waterfall. It turns back into a swan, spreads white wings, and flies into the distance, transforming into a star like the ones that we see in the distance in Dream's eyes, or like the Enterprise going to warp. Yes. Yeah, that's a very Star Trek moment there, actually. <laughs> the Undiscovered Country. <laughs> right. And this star. Oh can... man, that's a good movie. <laughs> the Undiscovered Country? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, just. Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> but also a good flick by William Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. The star can be seen from the courtyard where some of the dreams and dreamers are gathered. Uh, second from the right here, we can see Dr. Destiny. Oh, yep, there he is, that creepy old bastard. Yep. That creepy old bag. It'd be funny if Lyda just recognized him and punched his lights out. Then Lyda is suddenly no longer there. She is in a tower with Daniel, with the star visible through a window. This is very reminiscent of the tower where Morpheus confronted Alex Burgess in issue one. Good evening, Hippolyta Trevor Hall. Daniel? No. What was mortal of Daniel was burned away. What was immortal was transfigured. I am dream of the endless. He muses for a bit about punishment. The person who killed the first despair, he says, will be tortured for the rest of the universe before he's allowed to die. So that is new information, I think. That somebody killed her? Yeah, not just that despair died. I had been assuming that it was a suicide. Hmm. Well, he says the person who was responsible for the death of the first despair. I suppose it's conceivable that it was a suicide, and there's just somebody they blame for that. Some kind of a terribly shitty boyfriend. Ah! But he says that he'll take the rest of eternity to die. Only then will his pain cease. And he had better cause for what he did than you. You sought vengeance, Lyda, But that is a road that has no ending. But rather than give her some kind of punishment, he puts his mark on her. He embraces her and kisses her forehead here. maybe he doesn't kiss her forehead, but he definitely hugs her. No one shall harm you. Put your life together once again. Go in peace. Yeah, so she can go back to her life. She's not going to be hunted for what she did to Morpheus. Daniel, in his position as Dream, forgives her. And this is nice, both as a way to differentiate Daniel from Morpheus and as a happier ending for Lyda than what she got in The Kindly Ones. Right. When she's gone, Matthew comes in, saying this will be their only chance to talk for a while. I don't want to be your raven. I was his raven. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be the same. As you will. But geez, you're just a kid. Well, kinda. You're gonna need someone around to offer advice. Bail you out when you're in trouble, all that. And ravens, well, we don't grow on trees. Daniel asks what brought about Matthew's change of heart. And Matthew says it was something that he realized while he was giving his speech about Morpheus at the funeral. Funeral's over. Time to get on with our lives. Time to grow up. Anyway, he says the family is waiting in the dining hall. There'll be food, but they probably won't eat any. They'll just fiddle with it. And that's in keeping with what we've seen. Definitely saw Delirium playing with her food before. Well, Delirium is a very playing with her food type person. Daniel runs into Alex Burgess in the hall. He got lost after the funeral. Right. Rather than being angry or exacting any kind of punishment, he gives Alex Burgess a candle to light his way home. Right, and then he raises his arms and sends all of the dreamers back to their lives. And then he woke up. We get the narration as Alex wakes up at home, and this narration is repeated across the next couple of pages as all of the mourners wake up back in their lives. Nuala wakes up, Richard Maddock wakes up, Lyda wakes up, and Hob Gadling wakes up. And then, fighting to stay asleep, wishing it would go on forever, sure that once the dream was over it would never come back, you woke up. So, these issues have been a dream, and at the end, you wake from it. You, the reader. Yeah. I want to point out that Hob basically wakes up and immediately starts crying here. He remembers enough of the dream to know what it meant. Oh, I thought he was just blowing his nose. Oh, you know, he's been asleep. He needs a good clearing out oh, of the old well. sinuses. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Forgive me for reading emotional content into this story here. <laughs> I I read, uh, sinusal content. (laughs) There's a little conversation that we overhear between the Endless as we're coming in on that last page. Death knows Daniel will be scared. Despair knows what it's like to join this family, so she's going to try to be nice. Desire is reserving its judgment. Yeah, maybe it'll be nice. (laughs) Yeah. So as Matthew tells us, the funeral's over and you have to go on. The story of Morpheus is at an end and This story, The Sandman, will soon be at an end, and we will have to move on. Or several miniseries and one-shots could be released (laughs) over the years. (laughs) Just so that it doesn't truly die off. Yeah, Yeah. but but also the end is what gives it meaning, right? (laughs) Daniel enters the room where the other Endless are waiting, and we cut away. That's the end of the issue. We do not get to see their conversation. At least not in this issue. Yeah, well, and that's something that works for me. Daniel's uncertainty about meeting his family is a very humanizing moment for him as a character who has just appeared. Right. Because Child Daniel didn't bring a lot of traits to the table. We don't know what's left of Child Daniel in the the new dream. So he gets a really nice bit of character development sort of worrying about that. But I like that that is a moment that we don't get to see and that there are moments that we don't get to see. That it's called out explicitly that we are pulled out of the dream. Yeah. As much as we would like to see more, it has to end. Or our experience of it ends, and perhaps the dream goes on without us. Yeah. After a, we wake up. That's a good way of putting it. To wake is to go back to ordinary life, but it is also the end of a dream. And this is the story of a guy named Dream. <laughs> um, so in which we wake represents both the end of the wake and... The end of The Dream, the story of Morpheus. Right. Now, we know that every living thing in the DC universe was at Morpheus's funeral. So that is what Aqualad was probably up to. Well, it was November of 1995. So it's either this or Aqualad was somehow involved in the assassination attempt on Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chretin. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) You know, probably inadvertently. But I hope that assassination attempt... I don't think he would be involved in the assassination attempt. I think he might have tried to stop it. I just hope that that assassination attempt took place, you know, within one hour of water. Well, I mean, Beaky could be involved. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Beaky comes through in a pinch and saves Aqualad, thus allowing Aqualad to save the Canadian Prime Minister. That makes sense. So I guess my, my biggest question wrapping up this story arc is, how do you feel about having a three-issue funeral? Huh. I think that you, just the fact that you asked the question kind of makes me think that you know what I'm going to say. Which is like, this is all very nice, but what's the point? Okay. You know, like lots of fictional characters, even fictional characters who are the main character of their story, die with no funeral you know okay one of the things that you notice about just fiction in general especially serialized fiction yeah is that you don't get funerals for everybody that dies you know they show funerals when it suits the mood that they're trying to convey yeah but often often people get killed in serialized fiction and we don't ever see any funeral yeah. Particularly, there's a kind of a meme about how at the end of, oh, this is spoilery, but at the end of Avengers Endgame, there's a funeral for Tony Stark. There is, of course, no funeral for Natasha, who also died in that film. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's a good point. <laughs> um, Well, they sort of make up for that at the beginning of Spider-Man Far From Home with the uh, Goodbye Avengers video. So do we really need three issues to memorialize and say goodbye to a fictional character? Um, you know, not necessarily. And is the other stuff that's going on in here, is it moving the story forward? Is it continuing the story enough to be worthwhile? Hmm. Not really. Okay. So as much as they were very well written and still exploring interesting ideas and themes I just don't know if on a narrative level I feel like these issues are necessary. Okay, I don't I don't know about necessary. I will say that there are I think a couple of things that are accomplished here. One being to show that like the epic scope of what the endless are and what dream was that the universe itself has ways of mourning when he goes. Right? It mm-hmm. provides it provides the scale for the events of the last story arc. And the other being Daniel adjusting to his new role. Seeing how an how endless is replaced. As well, there are little dangling plot threads that get wrapped up. We found out how Nuala's glamour was able to be cured. We found out, basically, that Lyda didn't have to be on the run the rest of her life. Yes. I do think it's fair to say, though, that Neil Gaiman has sort of taken his sweet time on this series. He has obviously enjoyed writing it, and we know that it got longer in the telling. Right. And to some extent, you know, it's, it's been his world for six years, and he is taking his time and saying goodbye to it as well. Yeah, I think it begs the question. It's Dream's funeral. Yes. So the funeral takes place in a dream, and every living creature—you think it's every living creature, period— I think it's every living creature that was asleep at the time. Fair enough. Attends the funeral in dreams. But dreams are obviously thematically appropriate to dream, but how did the universe memorialize despair when despair died? Everybody in the world felt like absolute shit? Well, I mean, not in dreams. There was not a funeral in dreams, because dreams are not despair's element. Mm -hmm. So... So well, that's interesting, because they all, do, they all do have a realm, but Dreams seems to be the only realm that people visit with regularity. Right, that people are in and out. I mean, people visit Death's realm with regularity. <laughs> yeah. Not regularity in the sense of... <laughs> Nobody really gets out. Right, only once in their existence, <laughs> but, well, I'd but all that. <laughs> the time, for, but it's a regular thing for her. I mean, Superman and Batman eventually got out. Wesley Dodds maybe knows some people who did. Yeah. Got a revolving door for mutants. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there isn't an analogous way that people go to despair and come back. Right. So yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure how that works. Despair's realm is behind all mirrors. Maybe people were compelled to go to mirrors? <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Everyone who was looking in a mirror felt very sad. Yeah. Or very happy. Yeah. Because it's the absolute well, yeah, despair, right? It, it, well, again, we discussed the fact that the envoy that was created to obtain... Despair's is must have been incapable of feeling despair right yeah i wonder it would be really interesting i think to get a look at what it is like i mean we've seen a lot of what it's like for mortals when they get entangled in dreams realm yeah it would be interesting to have side stories that explore what it's like for humans to get involved in like other people's realms you okay. know do people visit desire's realm when they're in the throes of passion. Right. Do people visit Despair's realm when they're in the depths of depression? Do people, you know, people often write about war as like the battlefield being like another world. Is that Destruction's realm? Yeah, I really liked, by the way, how the first time we see Death in this uh, in this story arc, when the messenger comes to her, she is just happens to be striding across a battlefield. Mm, yeah. So yeah, those are my thoughts. Again, the art is, the art is really good, and it feels sort of elevated Mm -hmm. in a way. I mean, there's a lot of Sandman that has really interesting, or sort of, you know, very rich artwork. Yes. But, you know, very lush and detailed. But yeah, I really like the sort of semi-painted feel of this, because it gives it all a bit of an almost formal feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. And this final panel, this POV of Daniel on the rest of the Endless as he comes to the table, is a an image and a moment that stuck with me for a long time, as I think it's supposed to be, as the, as the narration suggests it will be. Yeah, there's another panel that comes to mind, the, the page of the funeral boat. Yeah. Carrying Morpheus's body, as that kind of drifts off into the horizon and turns into like a star that's an image that you can kind of really only pull off with this style like in mark hempel's style I yeah think that would have looked kind of cheap yeah uh, i think I, I, yeah i know that's definitely playing to the strengths of the artist there right final comments is there anyone you uh any character that you really enjoyed seeing again in this arc or anyone that you really want to see more of hopefully in the next three issues Well, this is sort of Matthew's story. Yeah. I mean, Matthew is the one character who really goes through a change
1: Mm -hmm.
0: in this this arc. Everybody sort of experiences the funeral and says goodbye. But Matthew is the one for whom it gives him something that he needs. Okay. So I, I thought that was nice, you know? Yeah, in the last story arc, we saw Matthew really concerned about the possibility of his own death or his next death uh, and then sort of finally accepting that when he was willing to go with morpheus to face the kindly ones right but now he's he is able to use the funeral to to move past morpheus's death to some extent and, and accept that he's able to live yeah all right in our next sandman episode we say goodbye to this series with the tempest but first There will be no show next week, as I am going on a vacation for the first time in many years, but join us in two weeks as John Constantine experiences fear and loathing. Vertiguise is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com, B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. And if you like websites, you might check out websites like twitter.com or gmail.com, where you can get in touch with us. I'm at blankcastshawn. I'm at Vertiguise. And you can email us vertiguise at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your questions or comments on these comics. We're also available facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you're enjoying the show, why don't you take a minute, whatever software you're using, the Apple Podcast app or otherwise, and give us a positive rating or review. That really helps people to find the show, and we'd be happy to read positive reviews on the air recommend us to a friend, recommend us to your mom and dad. (laughs) We're not overlooking the critical mom and dad demo. Yeah, if you are a mom or a dad, recommend us to your kids. Maybe not. (laughs) (laughs) Curate the episodes carefully in that case. Yeah, you might want to have your finger on the fast forward button. (laughs) But as always, thanks for listening, everyone. So, Heavy Rain is okay. son. Yeah. Jason. Jason. <laughs> <Nathan. laughs> yes, he does do that. Also, later on when you're looking for the other kid, because he lost two kids, because what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Ethan! <laughs> he says, Ethan. He, he's, he's shouting Sean, and there are, there's, like, one of the canned Sean yells is, like, super loud, but it's obviously been turned down because it was too loud. So he's, like, scream whispering. Shut <laughs>